Jesus. I want to ask you a question. Um, have you ever, right, and if you have, you can commiserate with me. If you have not, I strongly suggest that you never do. But have you ever lied to somebody who was important to you? Have you ever told a lie to a spouse, to a parent, to a teacher, to a grandparent? Have you ever told a lie, an untruth, to somebody that you love a lot? Now, if that person loves you a lot, forgiveness comes if you ask for it. And they, forgiveness comes and the slate, uh, is, you're put back in good graces. But you still have to live in the consequences of that lie. You've destroyed trust, and it doesn't matter whether it's an itty-bitty white lie or a humongous big whale's tail. It's lies kill, hurt relationships. Forgiveness is there, but you still have to live in the consequences of that because you've, de- you've destroyed trust that takes a long, long time to rebuild. Sin has consequences. Forgiveness is there, but there's still natural consequences that we have to deal with. We have to live with. Maybe lying isn't, your, isn't what you uh, have realized wrecking a relationship. Maybe, maybe it's, it's alcohol. Maybe alcohol has just killed a relationship. Maybe it's killed you. And I, I have an uncle who, when, when I, before I was around, when he was a, a, a young man, he, he had too much to drink, got behind the wheel of a car, was in an accident that took somebody's life. He paid the, the price for that in the law's eyes, he, he, but he could never forgive himself. He had to live in the consequences of that terrible sin, of that terrible experience. Maybe it's gambling. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe, maybe it's, it's, it's just spending money that you don't have and getting yourself into debt. We can, forgiveness is always available, whether it's from a person or whether it's from God, but there are still natural consequences that you have to live in. That is where Judah finds itself in Micah. And there's this remnant that has remained faithful. There's a lot that have not remained faithful. And, and, and judgment is coming. And we've looked at three chapters, and this judgment is horrendous. It's described as mountains melting, as people eating people, uh, uh, idols, things that, things that you hold near and dear being ripped away from you. Judgment is coming for you. And so is forgiveness. So is redemption. But because you have turned your back on me, you have to live with the natural consequences. And for them, for the northern kingdom, by this time, they, they have been taken off by the Assyrians. As, Ju- as, as Micah is writing to Judah, the southern kingdom, right, Assyria is knocking on the door. That remnant, that faithful remnant has, has, has retreated to Jerusalem, the holy city, and Assyria is surrounding. And that's where they found safety. And Assyria doesn't get all the way in. They come pretty close. But then not too long later, the Babylonians come in and haul off Judah into captivity. But here is where Judah is. They're sitting on that precipice between judgment is coming and redemption is coming. And it's a dark valley before they can get to redemption. It's the natural consequence of their sin. And chapters 1, 2, and 3 have been pretty dark. We've seen a little bit of glimpses of this warrior shepherd breaking in and leading us out into freedom. 
but it's been pretty dark. But in chapter 4, you see one of the most striking contrasts in all of Scripture. At the end of chapter 3, Jerusalem is being reduced to rubble. It's going to be a place where, where thickets spring up and where new, new trees grow. It's going to be demolished. But in chapter 4, some good news is coming. That very hit city, that very hill that was leveled is now being raised above all other hills and mountains. I'm going to do this a little bit different than I did in the first service. We're going to look at all of chapter four, four this morning. And if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn there and just follow along as we read. Not just chapter four, the 13 verses, but we're going to lump chapter five, verse one in there too, um, because it's really a more natural break uh, than where the, the chapter break comes in here. So if you have your Bible, have your device, follow along, and then we're going to just highlight some things. And this church is such good news. Let your imaginations run wild, because, because in this, remember, it's prophecy and it's poetry. It's there to evoke emotion, where one, two, and three were there just to scare shake you to your core, chapter 4 should put a smile on your face, should make your heart feel a little bit lighter. So follow along and let your imagination rule the day as we read through um, Micah chapter 4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and and will be raised above the hills. Peoples will stream to it, and many nations will come and say, Come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways, so we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He, God, will settle disputes among many nations and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation, and they will never again train for war. But each man will sit down under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has promised this. Though all the peoples each walk in the name of their gods, we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God, forever and ever. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration. I will assemble the lame. I will gather the scattered. Those I have injured, I will make the lame into a remnant. Those far removed into a strong nation. Then the Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion. From this time on and forever. And you, watchtower for the flock, fortified hill of daughter Zion, the formal former will rule, the former rule will come to you. Sovereignty will come to daughter Jerusalem. Now, why are you shouting loudly? Is there no king with you? Has your counselor perished so that anguish grips you like a woman in labor? Writhe and cry out, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you will leave the city and camp in the open fields. You will go to Babylon. There, you will be rescued. There, the Lord will redeem you from the powers of your enemies. Many nations have now assembled against you. They say, let her be defiled. 
and let us feast our eyes on Zion. They do not know the Lord's intentions or understand His plans, that He has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will make your horns iron and your hooves bronze, so you can crush many peoples. Then you will be set, then you will set apart their plunder to the Lord for destruction, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Chapter 5, now daughter who is under attack, you slash yourself in grief. A siege is set against us. They are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for these few short verses. God, words that for us, we have to search maybe for the answer and we have to dig into what the imagery may mean. But God, for those first hearers, for those first readers, God, they knew because you were speaking their language. You were speaking into their culture. So this morning, God, we ask you to speak into ours. God, may your word infiltrate our hearts in 2022 just as it did in 600 B.C. And God, will you please, please just direct our attention to you and to you alone. And God, we pray that, that you will just invigorate us uh, for obedience to you. Not because you're this, this power-hungry taskmaster, but because we see all that you have done for us as a holy God who cannot sin against us, but only has our eternal well-being in mind. God, be with us as we, as we spend a few minutes in your text this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, don't close your Bibles, but keep it open, and just, just go, let's just go through and hit some highlights. This is a chapter that we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on, and we're already spending weeks and weeks and weeks on the book of Micah, so we're not going to make this chapter a multi-week uh, series in itself. So I encourage you this week to keep your Bible open to Micah chapter 4. Go back and read it. Maybe set your ESV aside and pick up uh, uh, the NIV. Maybe set your NIV aside and pick up the Holman Christian Standard. Read it through different lenses. Uh, go and, and find yourself a good teacher, whether it's on Right Now Media or, 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 or someplace where you can dig in a little bit deeper because this section of Scripture is just dripping with good news for us. And I want you just to pay attention a, a, a few a few highlights. Um, I want you to notice what is going on. It says in the last days, and there's, a, there's some debate over what that means. Some people think that it's just that period of time right before Jesus returns a second time. But when you take a biblical and especially a prophetic, a prophet's um, uh, view of it, it means something much bigger because... Peter was living in the last days, and John Jobes is living in the last days. Micah, in a sense, was living in the last days. It's that time between a proclamation of God's Word is made and when it is ultimately fulfilled. For us as Christians, we're living in the last days that began when Jesus has died on the cross and ascended back into heaven. We are living in the last days because He hasn't returned to take His bride, the church, home. So for, the, for a Jewish person, it may have been that time when after they were carted off into Babylon that that remnant came back to Jerusalem and rebuilt the city and rebuilt the temple. 
they were living in those last days. So it has this far-reaching time. It's, this isn't just some, some prophecy that we read about that's, that's coded, and we have to get out our, our decoder wheel to figure out what's going on. No. Here, this passage is revealing God's ultimate plan for the world. And we have seen that because of sin, that our relationship with God has been marred, that it has been broken, and something has to happen in order to fix it. And notice what happens. The same God who demolished the hill of Jerusalem in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is now rebuilding and raising the hill of Jerusalem. And all of those, Jerusalem and city of Zion, are all talking about the same thing here. And it's going to be raised to the highest, above the highest mountain in the world. God is going to raise up the holy city. Now, and the temple. Now, you can flip over to the New Testament, and that, that, that idea of city and or temple means something to us. Because Jesus said something like, he sort of replayed this. He said something like, the temple's going to be destroyed, but in three days, it's going to be built again. He wasn't talking about that, that, that building on Jerusalem. He was talking about himself. I am going to be torn down. You are going to kill me, but don't worry, three days I'm going to walk out of the tomb. That temple is going to be rebuilt. The church in the New Testament is referred to as the temple, and we've talked about that earlier in this year. So, so not only is he talking about Jerusalem, B.C., he is talking about himself, and he is talking about us as the church, and he's saying that I'm going to raise it up. Jesus says, when I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Here we see an Old Testament rendition of that. God's saying, I'm going to lift Jerusalem up, and you see what happens? People are going to stream to it. Not trickle, not come in one here, one someplace else. They're going to stream to it. Uphill to the holy city of God. That's the good news that he's saying. And if you read through here, he's, there's good news hidden all throughout here. And you see what happens when all the peoples, all the nations are, are drawn to him. What's the purpose of being drawn to him? In verse number two, he will teach his ways. So, why? So that we will walk in his path. Not just the Jewish people in Micah chapter 4, not just the church in the New Testament, not just the church in 2022. All nations will be drawn to him so he can teach all of us to walk in his ways. He will teach us. Sounds a whole lot like Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one's coming to the holy city of Jerusalem that's described in Micah chapter 4 that isn't being led there by God and his teaching. There is only one way there. Jesus says the same thing in the gospel of Matthew. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This prophecy makes it clear that the religion in Scripture, okay, the religion in Scripture not these sort of 
at times convoluted ideas of what we have come up with in over the last 2,000 years, but the religion of Scripture is not compatible with any other religion on earth. There is only one way to God. The, the culture will say God is up on a mountain. Yeah, we'll give you that. But there's a whole lot of roads that are leading up to him. No, Jesus says, I am the only way to God. Uh, Michael Bentley, he, 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 he has this, this to say about this. He says, how foolish it is for the church to hold multi-faith services because all those who seek God through any means other than by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are deluded. There is no other way to God. Christians are not to synthesize their faith with other religions, but to advance the one true faith through the spread of the gospel. For the true God would have his mountain lifted alone, and his true faith is neither corrupted nor diluted by mixture with counterfeits. One true way, one road. We see the effects of this. And man, don't you long for this in verses three and four? And this is, this is some powerful imagery. I mean, we, we talk all the time about when we become a Christian, we are free from the consequ- eternal consequences of our sin. And as we progress in our faith, we're freed from the power of sin in our life by the power of the Spirit working in us. And one day when Jesus returns and we are glorified, we will be freed from the very presence of sin. Man, that's this, and what he describes here in Micah chapter 4, and that, that sounds good because they're going to take their weapons of war, they're going to make them into something that grows and gives, gives life. No longer will nation prepare for battle against another nation. We'll no longer prepare for war because God has, coming and brought, God has come and brought perfection with him. In, num- in chapter, or verse number five, rather, reminds us of where our focus must be. Everybody else is going to turn to their lowercase g, God, but not us, not the remnant, not the true people of God. We will rest, we will have our faith in God alone, the singular object of our affection and devotion. Let's pick up in verse 6, where he says, the lame will be assembled, the injured will be brought in, the lame will be brought into a remnant, those far will be removed into a strong nation. Yahweh transforms this group of motley survivors, the survivors of judgment that they have brought on themselves into the beginning of a new kingdom on earth. This text is an Old Testament example of what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 26, where he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He, he brought the weak, he brought the rejected. In Micah, 
in Corinth. You can even look to the Gospels and see how he assembled his group of 12. And you can look at that crew and you can see that he didn't choose the, the most educated. He didn't choose the most religiously faithful. He didn't choose those who were well-liked in the community. No, he chose fishermen. He chose brothers with a quick temper. He chose a tax collector who was hated by everybody. He chose a zealot who was ready to, to overthrow, ready to go to war. And he transformed those, that group of 12 into a group of young men who died for their faith. All but one died a martyr's death. But those 12 men changed the world, not by their own power, not by their own knowledge, but through what the Holy Spirit did in them. The contemporary church, church, needs to make sure that we aren't elevating the most learned, that we aren't elevating the most gifted, the richest, that we are elevating those who God elevates and letting him change their lives. The lame, the exiles, the blind, the nothings of this world constitute the stuff of which the kingdom is made. Martin Luther, uh, he was commenting on Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that verse that we can all quote by heart, but it applies to this, Micah chapter 4 as well. He said, God created the world out of nothing, and as long as you are not yet nothing... God cannot make something out of you. The church must never forget her roots. It constitutes this community of the crippled, but also of the crucified. Living out of this weakness, the church becomes strong because she doesn't rely on the individual faith of its members, but on the singular power that comes from the Holy Spirit. If you re starting in verse 8 and reading through chapter 5, verse 1, you have this back and forth going on. Micah raises up something and then he completely uh, just quenches, quelches that uh, with a comeback. In, in, in verse number eight, he, he talks about um, that, that you have people who are lording over you, but your former rule is going to come back. In verse number nine, he says, why are you shouting loudly like you don't have a king, like your counselors have perished? Um, he says, you're going to, in verse 10, you're going to leave the city for a bit. You're going to camp in the fields. You'll go to Babylon, but there you'll be rescued. In, in chapter uh, 11, it says, many nations are assembled against you and they're screaming, let her be defiled, right? And let us feast upon that holy city. Let's take it for ourselves. In verse number 12, you've got to understand those guys, those invaders, those who seek to destroy you, they don't understand the Lord's intentions. They don't understand his plan for you. One day you're going to be strong. Hey, that's some weird imagery right there. I'm going to make your horns iron and I'm going to give your hooves, give you hooves of bronze. All right, he's describing his da daughter Jerusalem. Right? This is not, doesn't sound like to us that this is an attractive young lady. But he's saying you're going to be strong. These are symbols. These are images of strength. But notice where it comes from. It does not come because they're able to defend themselves. Nope, that's been stripped away from them because they put too much faith in their strength, in their power, in their smarts. That's all been stripped away from them. God here says, I will make you strong. And then in verse number one of chapter five, he throws out the problem, but he just sort of leaves it dangling. He doesn't come back with this quick reply, but remember, 
He just sort of lets you sit there for a second in the tension that, that you're under attack, that you slash yourself in grief, and a siege is set before you. They're striking Israel uh, on the cheek with a rod, and then he just calls a timeout because he's setting the people of Israel up. He's setting us up for what is coming in 5 and chapter 6. This idea, and this is what we're going to look at next week in big detail, in deep detail, is Jesus coming in, the Messiah coming in. This text underscores that the future of the kingdom is not in doubt at all. God says, I'm coming back for you. He's coming back for you. God says, there's redemption coming. Take it to the bank that redemption is coming. But you may have to, for a period, live in the valley of the consequences, the natural consequences of your sin. You wanted to be like Babylon? You wanted to be like Assyria? You wanted to be like everybody around you? I'm going to give you your wish. So for a while, you're going to live there, and you're going to have to deal with all that. But stay focused, because I'm coming. And that remnant that remains faithful, church, that's you, that remnant that remains faithful, not only are you going to be given power to endure what's coming at you in this life, but man, is there an eternal inheritance set up for you that is beyond your wildest dreams and expectations. And that's where he, sets it, and that's where he tells us to focus. Keep focused on me, because I'm the giver of all that stuff. I'm the giver of that eternal inheritance. But for a while, it may be rough. Our first century brothers and sisters knew, understood this far better than we did. As we said, 11 of the 12 disciples, um, uh, the original 11, then take Judas out, stick Paul in there, 11 of the 12 died a martyr's death. Uh, they died wearing their suffering as a badge. Uh, that, that wearing suffering as a badge of a discipleship right, is something that, 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 that Peter or that Timothy talks about, um, that Paul talks about to Timothy. All who live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be crucified. Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8 that all creation is groaning. All creation is moaning for something else to come. But those first century Christians wore that suffering as a badge of courage. I'm going to admit something to you. I am a Chicago PD med uh, and, and fire junkie. And I don't watch them on Wednesday nights because I, I get home about halfway through that trilogy. But by like Friday or Saturday, I catch up. There's a new um, detective on Chicago PD, right? His name is Dante Torres. Torres is proud of what he does. Right, his badge, his police badge, right, he wears on a chain around his neck, on a white T-shirt, so everybody can see what he does and who he is. Some of those other guys who have been around for a while, they stick it on their belt. They sort of pull their shirt down over it when they need to and uh, sort of flash it when they need to. Not Torres, man. He, he wears that sucker out there. He is proud to, to be a policeman. It's his badge. Our first century brothers and sisters wore their suffering like a badge, our, our brothers and sisters in places where the, the, where the church is persecuted this morning, 
wear their suffering like a badge. You know, in the, the U.S., uh, uh, you don't trust a pastor as much until he has like a master's of divinity or, or a doctorate or, or he's went to seminary or Bible school. And that's, that's sort of their credentials. You know what the credentials for my counterpart in China is? The number of scars that he has on his physical body because he's endured it for Jesus Christ. That's his credentials. And he wears it like a badge. Church, this morning, where are you wearing that badge? Is it proudly there for everybody to see? Or are you walking around and just saying, hey, I see Donna, see my back, where's the same? Or is it there proud on display for everybody to see? This present time between the first and second coming of the Messiah is a time often marked by trials and tribulations. Oh, there's good times. And the birth of a child, the birth of a grandchild, uh, last, 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 the, earlier this year, I got to, to marry my niece to, to her, to her fiance, Elliot. And man, what a beautiful young Christian couple they are. And it's a, just, a, it's a, I mean, there's good stuff. Driving back from, from North Carolina yesterday, driving over the mountains and seeing the red and the yellow and uh, uh, the orange is just beautiful. There's good stuff here, but there's some terrible stuff too. Disease and divorce and abuse racism, slavery that still exists. There's some bad stuff too. Jesus says, come to me and I'm going to change all that. He changes us here by, by giving us a different mindset, a different standard by which we live, but it's still tough. And we have to plod through sometimes, all the while keeping our focus on Jesus Christ, our Savior. But we have to remember that there is still a not yet that there's still this, this perfection coming. We, 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 we ruin the perfection of Eden, but there's still perfection out in front of us. When Jesus returns a second time, he's taking us back to perfection. Right? And he's going to break in just like that shepherd warrior, and he's going to lead us out to freedom. Good and bad here in this life. But man, there's perfection coming for all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. This morning, I want us just, I want to encourage us as we wrap up to remember the power that is our God, the power that is Jesus Christ, the power that's giving to every believer when they place their faith in Him, when the Holy Spirit comes and becomes a living part of you. Justin Martyr, uh, you might recognize his name a little bit. It's where we get our, our term martyr for those who have died for their faith. But in the second century AD, he reminded us of just how powerful those infected by the Spirit of God, by the power of God can be. He wrote this, we can show you that this has really happened. For a band of 12 men went from Israel, and they were common men. They weren't trained in speaking. But by the power of God, they testified to every race of humankind that they were sent by Christ to teach all the world of God. And the world was changed because of their message. And you can go through second century brothers. You can go through fourth century brothers. You can go to a Martin Luther. You can go through all the ages. And you can see men and women, this remnant of faithful believers in Jesus Christ, who have changed their world 
not by their own personality, not by their own power, not by their own ability to speak and to share, but by the power of the Holy Spirit manifesting itself in their words and in their actions. We, we get to celebrate the life of a, a Mary Hammond for that very reason. We, we celebrate the life of uh, past pastors or past youth ministers or past grandpas, men and women in our lives who have directed our attention back to Jesus Christ, and we see the impact that their lives have made. This morning, church, what would happen in the Mid-Ohio Valley? What would happen in the Mid-Ohio Valley and beyond if the faithful remnant that is made up of the men and women that worship and that serve and that are members and attenders of FBCW kept their singular focus on Jesus Christ? Um, in this interim time between uh, youth pastors, Shelby and I have, have joined in, in sort of leading with Heather and with Kendrick and uh, with uh, the, the summit team. And before we went on vacation, we went to a youth uh, uh, pastor's gathering. Uh, we were by far the oldest people in the room. I was old enough to be their, not quite grandpa, um, but, their, but their dad for sure. But I was so refreshed by being in that room with, with youth pastors from, uh, from all over the valley, from Porterfield, from North, from Liberty Street, because they have this dream. They have this dream of bringing our students together, and we're going to join in with this church so that they realize that they're not alone. That although they may go to different churches on a Sunday morning, they go to the same school on Monday morning. They are on the same practice field on Tuesday afternoon. And a lot of times they think they're the only person in the room that believes in Jesus Christ, and that's not the reality. That's a lie, lie that Satan wants us to believe, that isolation. So their goal is to, to take back the math class, for them to be able to realize that they're not the only believer, teenage believer, sitting in algebra class. They're not the only believer on the soccer field. But there is this holy remnant in the Mid-Ohio Valley that can change lives. What would happen to our math classes if believers started bonding together? What would happen to Wood County Schools? What would happen to Marietta College? What would fiscal services look like? What would our dining room look like in the evening if that holy remnant was to keep their focus solely on Jesus Christ? What would our neighborhoods look like? What would our church look like what would the world look like if that holy remnant in 2022 kept God as their sole focus? Israel forgot about this. Judah was on the verge of forgetting about this. They forgot their role in the story. They thought the story was all about them. And each of us has that choice. We can, we can be the main, the leading character in our small story that has a very uh, short, <laughs> uh, sh short chapter, short book, or we can play a supporting role in this grand, epic story of God. Israel forgot their role, their responsibility. We should not. We must not forget ours because we must remember that our role is faithful obedience. God is in the salvation business. We're in the obedience business. God is the one who, through the power of the Holy Spirit, convicts people of sin and leads them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Our responsibility is simply to introduce them to the one that can save their soul. 
Jesus Christ did all that needed to be done on Calvary's cross for our sins. Came and lived a life that we couldn't. Died a death that should have been ours. Walked out of the tomb three days later, defeating everything that we couldn't forever. And it all happened, all began with one God, so solely focused, one Savior, so solely focused on the Father's will. And it's going to continue through men and women, that holy remnant who are singularly focused on God and no one else. So this morning, to whom does your singular faithful obedience belong? Jesus himself said no one can serve two masters. He's going to like one and hate the other, serve one and reject the other. Where is your singular focus this morning? There's some good stuff in this world, and if we focus on it, it's going to bring us happiness for a little bit. But you know what eventually is going to happen? It's going to fail us. Even the good stuff from God that we're, that we're given to enjoy, sooner or later, if we make it a God, it's going to fail us. It's going to disappoint us. There is only one source for eternal security, for eternal enjoyment, for eternity in light, and that is through, to God through Jesus Christ. Today, if you don't know him, I encourage you to walk into a relationship with you, with him. If, he is, if you feel this tapping on your shoulder, right, just yield to the Holy Spirit. Let him pull you into a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you've faltered in your walk and you've lost that, that fire that you once had when you first put your faith in Jesus Christ, man, I hope the imagery of uh, Micah 1, 2, and 3, and especially the imagery of Micah chapter 4 awakens you to all that is available to you through God, through his son, Jesus. Father God, thank you for this morning. And God, after several weeks and several chapters of just heavy news, God, we thank you for the reminder that comes at us like a fireworks show in Micah chapter 4. God, we, we look forward to the day when there is no more war and all the implements of war have been destroyed and transformed into life-giving tools. God, we look forward when nation no longer battles against nation. God, we look forward when you to the day when you make us strong and when people flood to you. And God, we pray that we can just rest in the promises that you have made. God, let us just rest in the fact that you're responsible for changing and for saving and for securing and let us just take courage and find energy in the fact that our task is merely to introduce people to Jesus. God, allow us to be faithfully obedient to the call that